A high school student once told me with a grin on his face that he was excited to go to hell. In hell, he reasoned, he would be free to do whatever he wanted, to indulge every evil desire, and all this with the company of his friends that would have the very same agenda. That's how he had it figured. I don't think many unbelievers would probably speak so boldly, but that about sums it up. The lost have no fear, at least no fruitful fear of God, and no genuine desire to honor His will. Even religious unbelievers share the same fundamental orientation towards sin. They do not fear God with reverential awe. They have no lasting zeal to honor God's will. And they do not hate sin. At the end of the day, religious unbelievers just don't want to get caught. But those of us who have been washed by the cleansing power of God's Spirit, those of us who have been regenerated by the power of the Gospel of Christ, are learning to hate sin. We retain certainly some of the residual cravings of the flesh for sinful pleasures and for godless purposes. Yet we find ourselves resisting temptation. We find ourselves rooting sin out. When God truly saves a soul, one of the evidences is a zeal to do what is right and to turn away from sin. We want to obey God's counsel. And we habitually repent of our sins. It is a way of life for us. For the genuine believer who is fighting the battle against sin, I'd like to encourage you with the truth that is crucial to our relationship with God as sinners. That truth is that God's sovereign governance of all things extends to our sinful choices. Over-anxious to protect God's reputation on their own terms, Many Christians insist that God has nothing to do with the sinful choices that people make. In His eternal wisdom, some argue, God created man with the freedom to obey or not to obey Him. Thus, God limits Himself by the decisions that people choose to make. God has nothing to do with human sin. He essentially simply responds to it. He sees what is going to happen. He interacts with people who have chosen to sin, but He really has nothing to do with it Himself. May I say very simply, this is not what the Bible teaches. It's not good thinking. Scripture consistently instructs us that God's sovereign ordination of all that comes to pass extends to the sins of His creatures. It encompasses that. Now we will contemplate the implications of this reality Lord willing, later, but let's first consider a single case of biblical evidence as we strive to better know and love God for who He truly is, and in this context, that pertains to His relationship to our sin. Before we get to this account from the life of King David, however, I'd like us to first look back to a time between Israel's exodus from Egypt and her entrance into the promised land. We go back to the book of Deuteronomy, and I invite you to chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12. All is necessary preparation for this account in David's life. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses prepares the nation of Israel to enter Canaan. 
and laced throughout these instructions, we find this repeating emphasis on an undisclosed location for central worship. God's people would worship Him wherever they were, but there would be this central place where the name of God would be magnified, where His people would come to worship Him. It's referenced throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Let's look at some of these references. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. Chapter 12, verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and make His habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, this ritual meal, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You will do this at this place. Verse 10 of the same chapter. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, remember they're on the other side of Jordan here, preparing to come into the land, then, verse 11, to the place that the Lord your God will choose, to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord at this place. God is clearly speaking of just one single place for all of Israel, and that's made very clear in verse 21 of this chapter. If the place that the Lord your God will choose to put His name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock which the Lord has given you as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns wherever you desire. That is, this worship meal, this ritual meal can be eaten in various other towns because some of you will find that you live far away from this place. Chapter 14 of Deuteronomy. Verse 22 you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God, in the place that He will choose to make His name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when the Lord your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, that means too far from where you turn out to live in the promised land, which the Lord your God chooses to set His name there, then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses. Chapter 16, verse 2. And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make His name dwell there. Verse 11, And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there be pretty hard for Israel to miss the point, isn't it? There is a place 
that God is going to choose. A place of central worship. Referenced again in chapter 26 as well. But it is so clear from these verses that God fully intends for the Israelites to recognize a place that God has chosen to center His worship for His presence to dwell there in a unique way within the promised land. Now, they have no idea where this place is. We do, of course, as we look back. We know exactly where God is heading. To Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, where the temple will reside. The Israelites don't know this at all. How will God identify this place? They don't know. God doesn't say. But how He identifies this place is highly instructive for us. And we locate this instruction in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Let me give you a bit of the context here before we delve into this narrative. From the 21st chapter on, 1 Chronicles focuses on the latter years of King David's life. The author of the Chronicles is seeking to encourage the Jews who have returned from Babylonian captivity by recounting Israel's history. And he's quite selective, noticeably positive in the retelling of this history. These are Jews now coming back from Babylonian captivity. They have been punished for their sins as a nation against God. And so now the agenda here is to encourage them. He draws examples of faithfulness in Israel's history. He draws upon God's love for Israel, His blessing upon Israel. But as the chronicler tells this story, as he comes to this place, it is absolutely essential that he talks about sin. He's filtered out many negative stories. He's filtered out, for instance, David's sin with Bathsheba, his adultery, his murder, and the consequences of that. That doesn't play into his purpose for this book. But in this chapter, we come to a crucial moment in Israel's history and you cannot tell the story any other way than to mention this sin. Some have wondered why this sin is mentioned. Why not give the account of David's sin with Bathsheba, for instance? It's because of the purpose of the book and because this particular point can be made no other way. So let's read of David's sin beginning at verse 1. That sin is described. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring me a report that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to His people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my Lord the King, all of them my Lord's servants? Why then should my Lord require this? Why should it be a cause of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David in all Israel. There were 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and in Judah 470,000 who drew the sword. That is a census of the army. But he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering for the king's command was abhorrent 
to Joab. So we don't have even the entire number here. But the question arises, why is it evil for King David to take a census, to count the number of Israelites under his rule? His military commander, Joab, let me just say it this way, he was not exactly known for his spiritual sensitivity. This man was, in many respects, a moral dullard. And yet, even Joab understands this is a very bad idea. This will make us guilty before God. It will render us liable to divine judgment. Don't do this, David. Nothing good is going to come of this. Even Joab sees this. Now, taking a census is not inherently evil, such as, for instance, stealing. Stealing violates the will and violates the character of God. A census is not like that. God Himself commands that a census would be taken, that a head count would be taken of Israel in Leviticus chapter 1 and Leviticus chapter 26. So that's not the problem. We find no direct explanation here. Some have thought that it may have had to do with the fact that David wants to tax the people. It may certainly be partly that he is, by counting, seeking to control the people. But I think we're safe to assume, though the text doesn't spell it out, that David's command was rooted in pride and in misplaced faith. Remember Israel's sin under Samuel? Israel sought a king. Why? in order to be like the other nations. Under Samuel, Israel longed to trust a king instead of trusting directly in God. And I think that's what's happening here with David. David seems to boastfully put his faith in the size and the power of his army. Joab knows this is wrong. Joab knows that this pride will lead to judgment in some sense. But David moves forward because he wants to put his trust there in his pride. Parallel account in 2 Samuel 24, the census took nearly ten months. And Job, as we read here in verse 2 in 1 Chronicles 21, travels from Beersheba to Dan. That is, from the southern extremity to the northern extremity of the nation. And it was a way of saying by figure of speech, he's covered the whole territory. Now, it was really a fool's errand, this whole thing. Because ironically, by the time David's grandson takes the throne, there will be no Dan to take into the census. In fact, the majority of these tribes will splinter off into the northern kingdom. Just David's grandson won't have these people to count. But as we think on his sin, and for the purposes of the series in which we find ourselves on divine providence, I'd like us to hone in on verse 1 for some time. Let's sit there for a moment. This same event, as I mentioned, is recorded in 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel, the purpose of the narrative is different. The reason that the author of 2 Samuel includes this account is different. He is seeking to explain why God judges Israel. Israel deserves the judgment of God because of her rebellion against God's king, David. Even though David has fallen into sin, Absalom's rebellion and Sheba's rebellion render Israel guilty before God. What is the agenda of the author of the Chronicles? It is again to record the faithfulness to God that he finds in the history of Israel. These two different agendas 
lead to a different introduction to the account. Same account, same exact experience, but a different introduction. I'd like us to turn back to 2 Samuel. Before we do, let me just say this. I warn you that what you see here may shock you. Some of you know exactly what's coming. Some of you have no idea what you're going to see. Let's go back to the same account in 2 Samuel 24 and see how the author introduces the account. 2 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 1. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. Is this a discrepancy in the Bible? We believe, as God's Word teaches, that this is the very words of God. It's not a discrepancy. One account says that God incites David to count the people. The other says that Satan incites David to count the people. Which one's right? They both are. The authors have a different agenda, and so they choose a different angle in how to tell what they are recounting. But I think here, what we have is that 1 Chronicles 21 looks at the nearer cause of David's temptation, namely Satan. And 2 Samuel looks at the ultimate cause, namely God. And I believe here that our study last week in the book of Job really helps us, doesn't it? Satan can have no access to anyone unless God grants it. We learn that there in the book of Job. This means that Satan then here in David's life was granted freedom by God to choose to tempt David. And David was granted freedom by God to respond willingly to that temptation. So that as we look at the ultimate sovereign control of God, it is right to say God incites David to number the people. We understand that though to mean that Satan incites David to sin and David willingly chooses to sin against God. But God permits it. And God ordains it. And God sovereignly rules over it. Now this raises the question as to whether God is evil. Does He tempt David with sin? Does He choose and design in His own purposes to say, I want David to sin and I will tempt him to do so? Let's turn to James chapter 1, which is not by any means the only passage that addresses this matter, but it is very succinct here, and so it is a very helpful passage to us. James chapter 1 and verse 12 reads, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't say that. Why? God cannot be tempted with evil and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There is not a drop of sin in God. He is absolutely pure and infinitely good. Nothing evil is in Him so no evil can emit from Him. 
the desire to sin and to do wrong is not found in God, it is found in our hearts. It is certainly in the heart of Satan who tempts. But God cannot be tempted by evil and He never tempts anyone to sin. He doesn't design it in His heart, in His desire. However, putting this together, God reigns with such absolute sovereign authority that no temptation can touch us without His permitting Satan to tempt us and without our willingly choosing to disobey God. So ultimately, no sin is ever committed apart from God permitting it to take place and apart from that sin fulfilling His sovereign purposes. Did you hear that? That is going to steer us in life in a very different direction than how many perceive life. No sin is ever committed apart from God permitting it to take place and apart from that sin fulfilling His sovereign purposes. You meant it for evil, said Joseph to his brothers. God meant your sin for good. He didn't adjust Himself once He figured out what you were going to do. He intended that sin to serve His good purposes. It says to us that there is a world of suffering and travail out there. Sin wreaks havoc in our lives. But there is also a world of hope in the reality that God rules sovereignly over all that comes to pass, ordaining even sin to fulfill His ultimate purposes for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. There's a world of hope in that. As we grasp this reality, it overwhelms fear and anxiety. And it replaces them with courage and with unspeakable joy to know that our God is that great. That no evil can come apart from His sovereign ordination and purpose. All things working together for good to those who love God. What confidence is here? At verse 7, we move from David's sin back to 1 Chronicles chapter 21. From David's sin to David's repentance and discipline. David's repentance and discipline, verse 7. But God was displeased with this thing and He struck Israel. Second Samuel puts it, David's heart struck him. That is, struck him with conviction for dishonoring God. How God strikes Israel will be brought out in the verses that follow. But this chapter emphasizes that God judges Israel because of David's sin. 2 Samuel 24 stresses that God also uses the occasion to judge Israel's sin. Verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. We know this response if we're true believers in Christ. We know that heartache of having to come to God and plead for forgiveness for our sin. The Lord spoke, verse 9, to Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose what you will either three years of famine 
or three months of devastation by your foes while the sword of your enemies overtakes you, or else three days of the sword of the Lord, pestilence on the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now decide what answer I shall return to Him who sent me. That is, to the Lord. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for His mercy is very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell. God who gives life is entirely just to take life as He meets out justice. Severe punishment upon Israel. Severe punishment upon her king, David, for his sin. His pride. His dependence on self. And God, verse 15, sent the angel to Jerusalem to destroy it as well. But as He was about to destroy it, the Lord saw and He relented from the calamity. And He said to the angel who was working destruction, it is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was standing by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between earth and heaven, hovering in midair. And in his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell upon their faces. Why are they in sackcloth? They are undoubtedly praying and fasting and seeking the face of God to stop the judgment on this third day. And God halts that judgment right at the city where David lived. Jerusalem. It just happens to be right where he is. And David said to God in verse 17, Was it not I who gave command to number the people? Is it I who have sinned and done evil? And it is I who have sinned and done great evil. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand, O Lord my God, be against me and against my father's house, but do not let the plague be on your people. That's precisely how he should pray. It's of course not the whole piece. It is David's sin that's being judged, but it is Israel's sin that's being judged as well. But as David looks at it, I am the cause of this judgment. Please bring it to an end. And God mercifully hears his prayer. We enter then at verse 18 upon God's counsel and restoration of David. The angel of the Lord had commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word, which he had spoken in the name of the Lord. Now Ornan was threshing wheat. He turned and saw the angel, and his four sons who were with him hid themselves. This angel hovering there with drawn sword. Probably a reference to the four sons in that there were five eyewitnesses to this vision, seeing this angel. The threshing sledges or wooden frames pulled by the ox over the wheat in order to grind it. They're working there and they see this angel stop right there at the threshing floor. 
Verse 21, as David came to Ornan, Ornan looked and saw David and went out from the threshing floor and paid homage to David with his face to the ground. And David said to Ornan, Give me the site of the threshing floor that I may build on it an altar to the Lord. Give it to me at its full price that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Ornan said to David, Take it and let my lord the king do what seems good to him. See, I give the oxen for burnt offerings and the threshing sledges for the wood and the wheat for a grain offering. I give it all. One imagines that Ornan was a little bit motivated by the vision that he'd just seen to give up his prize threshing floor rather quickly. He understands the situation, assesses it well. Then we enter on this statement of David, which is so crucial to the passage, not as crucial to the topic at hand for us, but how important it is as David says to Ornan, no, but I will buy them for the full price. I will not take for the Lord what is yours, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Worshiping the God who saves us without sacrificing tithes and offerings to Him is one thing. But ultimately, we are to give nothing less than our soul and body to the devoted worship of Jesus Christ at all times. As Romans 12 and verse 1 puts it, we are to give our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, which is our reasonable service. How often we receive the salvation of God and give nothing for it. Now, understanding, we cannot pay anything for our salvation. We cannot begin to even the account by responding to what Christ has given to us. But there is a sense in which we can be a Christian freeloader. We simply take, but we don't give. David wants nothing to do with such worship. I will not receive this and turn it over to the worship of God, paying nothing. But I will give what it's worth. And he paid a sizable amount for this property if we take the gold and extrapolate it out to our own day. It was a sizable amount of money. We can never pay for what Christ has done. But we know that He's taken our sin upon Himself. That He's laid down His life and died, paying the price of God's judgment against our sin. We know this is what Christ has done for us. There is only one proper response if we understand what He's done. And that is to give our lives in utter devotion to Him. A devotion that orders our thoughts, our goals and dreams, that orders our bank accounts, our families, our entertainment, our very souls. If we really come to discern what Christ has done, We will count it a privilege to pour out everything that we have, everything that we are in the service of Christ. I will not offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing, says David. And so we, in response, so much greater, should give our very soul to the Christ who has saved us. And David does pay Ornan. 600 shekels of gold by weight for the site. Verse 26, And David built there an altar to the Lord and presented burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And the Lord answered him with fire from heaven upon the altar of burnt offering. 
Then the Lord commanded the angel and he put his sword back into its sheath. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him at the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. A couple of things to note real briefly. He answered him by fire. That is, God brought fire from heaven to consume the sacrifice, thus saying, as he would say with Elijah, this one has God's approval. The burning of this sacrifice by God shows that David was in the right place at the right altar doing the right thing. And I think as we work through verses 26 through 28, we should put a heavy stress on the word there. David built there, verse 26, an altar to the Lord. Then verse 28, he sacrificed there. Verse 29, for the temple of the Lord which Moses had made in the wilderness and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in the high place at Gibeon, not Jerusalem. But David could not go before it to inquire of God for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. The tabernacle the Israelites had constructed in the wilderness at God's command was located at the town of Gibeon. It would have been logical for David to travel to Gibeon to offer sacrifice on the altar that was there. That was the altar that God had designed in the wilderness that Israel had built. But he does not do that because God instructs him to build an altar here at Jerusalem. So he didn't go there to that place. We learn further in verse 30 that David does not sacrifice at Gibeon because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. We don't really know what that means. But remember, the angel of the Lord with drawn sword is the pestilence. There is, it seems, a vision of this angel certainly, but it's carrying this pestilence. There are many who are dying. Perhaps Gibeon had been visited and David is afraid to go there lest he die as well. He's in Jerusalem and no one's dying in Jerusalem. In fact, the angel then will come and stop right at the outskirts here of Jerusalem. Whatever it means, what is clear is that God wanted David to worship at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. The first verse of chapter 22 says, David said, Here shall be the house of the Lord God and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. You see the emphasis, verse 26 there. Not there. Verse 28, he sacrificed there at this threshing floor. 22 verse 1, here shall be the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Here at this place. Remember the place prophesied in Deuteronomy? God promised the Israelites as the nation stood poised to conquer the promised land that He would identify a place for the worship of His name. Many generations passed through the era of the judges. And if you had asked an Israelite prior to this setting here in 1 Chronicles 21, where is the central place of worship for Israel? What would they say? There would be no other answer than to say Gibeon. Gibeon is where the tabernacle is located. That's the place where the altar that God designed and that we brought across the Jordan is placed. That's where the ultimate offerings are, are sacrificed, where we meet with God. It's a Gibeon. But God had another plan. 
A plan He brought about through the confluence of His sovereign purposes, working themselves out through the free choices that people made. God wanted His temple constructed on Mount Moriah. He may have come in with the Israelites as they crossed the Jordan and with an angel simply pointed at the place. God can do what He wants. The place could have glowed for that matter and said, here it is. It's not how He works. He wants to put the temple on Mount Moriah. David wants to magnify his own name in pride and to place idolatrous trust in the strength of his army. And these two streams flow together. God's purpose is fulfilled then through David's sin. Sin for which David repented. Sin for which God forgave him. I say that to say it's not that David has not sinned. He has. God holds him accountable for his sin. Severely so. And yet God brings about His purpose to set His worship on Mount Moriah. Recently, a former member encouraged me to remain faithful in the teaching of this series of sermons on divine providence. She referred back to our consideration of this topic some ten years ago as uniquely helpful to her walk with God, even though, and I quote her as she writes, at times I thought you were preaching heresy and turning my world upside down by contradicting a lot of what I believed was true about God and His design. But I look now at that series as a pivotal point in my Christian walk. And for that I will be forever grateful. Contradictions to what we believe about God may indeed be heretical teachings. But when we honestly come to terms with what God's Word says, we find so often that it is our understanding of God that is heretical. And that's to be understood on some level. We must mature. We must grow. We must develop in our understanding of who He is. But the vision that we see here is not of a God who stands off on the sidelines when sinful choices are being made. But one who is great enough ultimately great to bring about all things to the fulfillment of His purposes. Let me ask you, when, when God promised to center His worship in the promised land at a particular place, did He know where that was? Is He saying to Israel in Deuteronomy, we'll figure this out as we go in and I'll find out what you choose to do and then I'll make my adjustments and eventually we'll find a place of worship? He knows exactly in His omniscience where this place will be. He doesn't reveal to them where it is just yet. Let me ask, when God made that promise, do you think He knew that David's sin would be the human cause of locating that place of worship? Of course He did. Yet how many Christians are comfortable with the idea that God would purposefully use David's sin of numbering the people to put His temple on Mount Zion and use David's sin with Bathsheba to produce the heir of God's covenant with David who would build that temple, Solomon. How many Christians are comfortable reading 2 Samuel 24.1 and 1 Chronicles 21.1 side by side? Comfortable with these hard words. 
God incited David. And may I suggest that we have no business not being comfortable with them. This is God's revelation to us. Now we have to put it together rightly. May I suggest also that unless God ordains the existence of sin, purposes to permit it, reigns sovereignly over it, and employs human sin to serve His ultimate purposes, all the time remaining guiltless and free of sin Himself, then He is a small God worthy of only limited devotion. And we are our own gods out there trying to work with the sinful choices that we make and that others make around us. To the contrary, we meet in the pages of Scripture a different God, a great God. And to know God as sovereign over human sin is a tremendous source then to us of comfort and confidence, ultimately a source of unending praise. It is what the Scriptures teach. I can know that no sin anyone commits against me is random. And I can have confidence that every such sin has a purpose designed by an all-powerful God who loves me it's not fate. It's a God who works with sovereign purpose for the love of His people and the glory of His name in all things. And as we learn in this text, I can also know that as I deal with the agony and the futility of sin in my own life, that even my sin is not randomly separated from God's sovereign and loving purposes. Even those sins that are heart-wrenching that are agonizing to those of us who are learning to hate it and root it out. It's not without purpose. Now there's a caution here. And I ask you, is there some inkling somewhere in your soul that somehow says in response to this, I can always have freedom to sin. It's okay because God's going to work all things together for good. He uses sin to accomplish His purposes. It's alright. Paul asked this question this way. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And let me just argue for a moment along just some very logical lines. Remember what happened with David's affair with Bathsheba? Constant war and disgrace beyond imagination. What happened as David numbers the people in his pride, in his dependence upon his army instead of God? 70,000 people die, and he is overwhelmed with the sense that this is my responsibility. And on one level, it was. These accounts don't exactly encourage us to go on in sin that grace may abound. Indeed, even as Joab knew bad things will always come of our sin. We are not in this series going to land on it. Let me just reference again Judges 14 as we read that Samson slept with the woman of his dreams and woke up in a living nightmare, blinded, never to see or touch a woman again. And yet the text says that God ordained this to seeking out an occasion against the Philistines. 
So do not get the sense in any way, shape, or form that we are somehow free to sin because God will work things out for good. He will. He will also hold us accountable for any sin that we commit. What we are to gain from this text is that God will never be surprised by sin, but rather that He ordains it. That God will never be stymied by sin. He always employs sinful choices to serve ultimate ends. We learn as we did in Job that God reigns sovereignly over every temptation. And as we learn in Romans 8 and verse 28, works all things for the glory of His name. Mount Moriah. Abraham offers Isaac or thinks that he will. A substitute is put in Isaac's place. Mount Moriah. Here the temple will ultimately be erected. Where do we move in 1 Chronicles 22? We move now to Solomon who will build the temple at this place. Today, we meet with God not at this place. The place where we meet with God is at the foot of the cross. It is in the work that Jesus Christ has done. The ultimate sacrifice that is offered here in this city for the forgiveness of sins. And so the ultimate good that can come, the ultimate good that can come of anyone's sin is that my sin leads me to the conviction that I stand as a guilty sinner before God and I stand liable of His just judgment of my sin in eternal hell. That's the ultimate good that can come from sin. The ultimate good that can come of my sin is that I turn from it to embrace the forgiveness offered by a free gift as a free gift by Christ who died to deliver me from sin's penalty and from sin's power. That's the ultimate outcome of sin. Sin is never an ultimate tragedy unless I refuse to turn from it and enter eternity covered in guilt rather than robed in the righteousness of Christ, think on the wonder of this. Do you know how you know God? How do I know Christ? It's because of my sin. It is our sin that has brought us to understand who we are and to seek the face of God in Christ. To come to the cross and say, that is my sin for which Christ is dying. And in the conviction of that sin, to turn and meet with God in the person of Christ who pays the penalty of my sin and whose righteousness is imputed to my account. God uses our sinful choices to bring us ultimately to His salvation in Jesus Christ. And perhaps today God has brought you in His providence to this place to come to terms with your sin and how it separates you from God. You might even say, honestly, I just don't want to get caught. I don't have a hatred of sin. I love sin. I don't care to root it out. I just don't want anybody to know. You need to understand that that path is a path to ultimate judgment and infinite sorrow. But in the offering 
that Christ provides. The meeting place now is not the temple in Jerusalem. The meeting place now is the Christ who was crucified there. In coming to Him, turn from your sin. Receive the gift of forgiveness. And trust Him as your Savior and God's provision for our sin. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, does this not lead us to hate sin more? And to want to root it out more? And to know how God in His mercy and His grace will never leave us or forsake us? We will never be ruined by sin or death. It should lead us to love Him more and to thank Him for the stirring that He placed within our heart to come to know Him as our Savior and Lord. Let's bow in prayer. We thank You, Father, for the wonder of Your saving purposes in Christ. And though we sense in our heart a treason, we thank You for the stirring that You've placed within to draw us to Christ. And I pray for anyone that has not come to that place of confidence that they know Christ as Savior. I ask that You would bring them to seek someone out as they leave today and that they would seek salvation in the, in the name of Christ this day. I pray as You move within our hearts as Christians, there is undoubtedly those who come bound in sin, unwilling to repent. I pray, Father, that You will bring Your Word to bear upon their hearts and that they would respond as David did and say, I have sinned. I will turn. Forgive me, God. I pray that in the quiet of this moment that we might pray such prayers. I pray, Father, that in Your mercy You will show us the wonder of Your forgiveness in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.